Hi, my name is Gauri Sharma and you're listening to EPRI Talks, a podcast which is documenting the variety of voices the EPRI programme consists of. The Exchange Programme for Regional Integration and Exchange in East Asia and Europe, which is what EPRI stands for, is an annual summer school hosted by Korea Verband Berlin that aims at bringing together young experts from Europe and East Asia to discuss some of the globe's most pressing social and political matters. In our first episode, we talk about fake news and misinformation, and joining us today are Raphael Schmudziger, Kecheng Fang and Eva Dunal. Thank you for joining us. To start with, it would be great if you could each give a brief introduction to yourself and the work you are doing at the moment. Eva, um, if you'd like to start, please. Okay, hi, I'm Eva. I was previously working as a journalist for Outriders. It's a words broad media startup. And currently I'm working as a freelancer and a PR manager in foundation. And I'm working with and on social media. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Kecheng. I'm now based in Hong Kong. I'm a uh, assistant professor at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. I teach journalism and communication. I used to be a journalist in China. I worked as journalist for three years at a newspaper, Sazun Weekly. And before I came to Hong Kong, I was in the US, got a PhD in communication from my University of Pennsylvania. I'm Raphael. I'm research coordinator at a German NGO called Democracy Reporting International. And currently I'm responsible for analyzing the impact of social media in different elections around the world. So basically understanding how social media can be manipulated through the use of disinformation or hate speech to achieve different political goals. My organization has offices in six countries. So we try to bring evidence from countries that are underrepresented. So we looked a bit into Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Tunisia, Libya, Ukraine to kind of like add to this evidence that often comes mostly from the United States or countries in the European Union. How would you describe the impact falsehoods and misinformation have been having in your regional context in recent years? It may be good here to talk about particular recent examples like elections and how fake news and falsehoods may have influenced these outcomes. I would say that the topic came to my attention, I think, probably at the same time as for most of people. It was in 2016 when we saw the possibilities that social media manipulation could affect electoral integrity or electoral choices from voters if we take the U.S. elections in consideration or the Brexit referendum. But the impact of social media started way before that. I started my interest looking into the elections in Brazil in 2014. And back then I was like very interested about how these new forms of communication were affecting how people relate to politics. And I feel that like now 2021, we are seeing more or less this the added effects of how social media changed the way that we consume information, that we share our feelings, that we campaign, that we discuss politics. And I feel that there is a lot of elements involved in that. I think elections are just one of them. Uh, we are very used to kind of focus very much on elections because during elections you have interests at place and it's very clear what you are willing to achieve if you're just launching a disinformation campaign against a candidate, against a party, against an ideology. You know very well what you want. You want to win seats. You want to win a position in that election. But we kind of witnessed more or less like a constant campaign environment ever since social media became part of our way of discussing politics in which campaign never ends. So if you see how Trump went after Trump won in the U.S., 
the day after inauguration, he was still continuing to campaign or he was still continuing to kind of like mobilize his base and actually try to gather group support. Uh, we see a new dynamics happening. So I think it's very difficult and maybe Kachan can, can bring some academic evidence to that. But I think it's very difficult for us to know exactly the direction and the evidence of how it impacts elections. So we cannot say for sure that social media was responsible for Trump's election because it's part of much more complex environment. But I kind of see that we live in a different information environment where campaigning becomes something cheap because you don't need to run ads on television. You don't need to do anything. You just need to use your network of people in social media, which is for free. And you can continue campaigning that around the clock. And I think we can discuss this later, but this is part of like the controversial decision about uh, why Trump was banned from some social media companies. But it's really like this new dynamics that we live in. But actually, do you see the difference between what happened, how we were voting in 2018, 19 and 2020? So, yeah, I mean, I started working for DRI in 2018. My first elections that I analyzed were in Nigeria. Before that, I did my thesis where I analyzed four European elections and Throughout time, 2019, I looked into more five elections. What I observed from like looking at elections throughout time was not really that there was a difference, but rather that more actors were involved in those campaigns or strategies of using disinformation, using hate speech, or learning how to use those tools in order to benefit or to create confusion from voters. So I would say that like, not that things changed, like, of course, they changed because also social media companies saw the potential for misuse of their platforms and they took action in some senses. But you also see other actors being more creative using social media to confuse voters. So I don't see how it clearly changed in one direction, but rather that more people learn how to use this new campaign environment and that we have been seeing those strategies being used around the world. I'd like to add one thing. I think Rafael is correct in the way that the first of all, the academic study in proving this causal relationship between social media and the election outcome is very difficult. So we do not have concrete evidence now. Uh, but one thing I want to add is that Yes, nowadays you can run a campaign without spending a lot of money on TV. But for the case of Trump, especially the 2016 election, Trump, Hillary Clinton, yes, it's true that Trump raised much less money than Clinton. But TV, television, this traditional media still played an important role. That is because traditional media driven by this motivation to attract audience, right? So they focus on Trump much more than any other candidates. So that basically the TV stations gave a free television time to Trump, which helped to boost Trump's popularity in the Republicans' primaries. So that is a reminder that although we are talking about social media mainly, but we should not forget that traditional media still plays an important role in reaching the audience. And I have to say that when Trump spread the lies, to some extent, especially uh, in 2016, TV stations, traditional media, to a certain extent, helped disseminate Trump's lies to the public. Yeah, I will just quickly add on that because I think it's a great example of why is that different from other countries. And I think in Germany, for example, that was a very interesting case because there is almost like an agreement in Germany that media won't amplify 
neo-Nazi or, or extreme right language or any statements that are done so that like they don't amplify. I think the media systems from different countries are different. So I think, of course, there is a big impact of social media also in Germany, but it, it also helps explain the different cultural differences, also help explain the different impact it has. I'm from Poland and the ruling party use public TV because they actually own this public TV and they are using it in a very good way, in their meaning, that they want to get the concrete audience. People over 50, 60, those are the people who are voting for them. So they are using public TV to show what they want to do in the way they want to show it. And when they were trying to get into younger audience, the president started his TikTok profile and Instagram, and suddenly when it didn't when they didn't show the the effect they wanted to show, they deleted those accounts and they are still using only public TV. But it's enough for them. So some researchers believe that in the US, we observe a division of the broadly understood media system into a liberal path and a conservative path. Do you think that in the era of algorithms, information bubbles, bots and highly ideological traditional media outlets, that this division will continue to deepen all over the world? So first of all, I think in many areas in this world, it's really difficult to apply this liberal uh, conservative divide. For example, in China, in this authoritarian regime, you cannot really like apply this liberal conservative divide to that kind of context. So actually, for me, I think that the division I am thinking of is not liberal conservative division, is establishment and anti-establishment or establishment and populist division. Okay. So I think this happens in the US, in Europe, right? We see these anti-establishment and populist parties, not only from the right, but there is a leftist populist parties and figures. And in terms of media environment that also reflected in the media environment, that is whether you are left or right, as long as you still have trust in traditional media, then it's easier to build consensus among these kind of groups. But if you really do not believe in traditional institutional media, you really get your media diet from mainly from these opinion leaders, either from the leftist or the rightist camp, then it will be more polarized. So for me, I think the real division is between establishment and the populist camps. And I would add something else to that, because I think that another element that is important to differentiate is actually the quality of the information that comes from both sides. Because one other spectrum is that for the medium user of social media, it's very difficult to differentiate between different media outlets, let's say if you see a link or if you see just something online, you might believe because it looks like a news piece, but it normally comes from a false or, or like one online media outlet. You don't know where it comes from or is something very partisan that was created. A lot of false or disinformation campaigns were successful because they created news portals and those news portals were pretending that they were truth-worthy media when in fact they were not. And I think over the past years, a lot of social media companies have tried to 
rank differently different sources of information to try to give more prominence to media such as BBC, CNN, New York Times, Fox News, like any media that is more established, whether it's more conservative or more liberal, they should receive more attention because they have journalistic standards to abide for. When other news media outlets, they don't. A lot of people are consuming or have a, a news diet that consists only of low quality news. And like, if you form your political opinions based on news that are actually very biased, very partisan, false, sometimes you might be more prone to believe in conspiracy theories in the future or believe more in falsehoods or really shape your opinion in a different reality than the one that we live in. So I think that's the biggest problem for this polarization of this media environment uh, that we are living in. I thought that paywalls are the problem. Uh, that people without access to those good portals will not have access to proper information. But actually, for example, New York Times have open access for five or ten articles for one month. And actually, I don't think many people reach that limit while uh, reading New York Times every day almost. But yeah, you've mentioned something, a good point that we are also divided not into left or right, but also if we are well-educated and critical thinking when it comes to scrolling Facebook, for example. I actually want to say something good about paywall. Uh, so so that's because, for example, New York Times and Washington Post, uh, this paywall actually freed these media organizations from chasing this sensational content. I think it's a pity that it restricted the public access to some extent, but I think it's, to another extent, it's a meaningful move from this toxic old model of content production. If I may add something to this point, yesterday I was at the media conference where media startups in Poland were talking how they are trying to reach the audience. And they said that Facebook's actually not is not a good playground anymore. <laughs> not only because how they respond to media outlets, but also that people are moving out from Facebook and they have to start reaching new platforms. Or sometimes Patronite is enough or a newsletter. On transnational falsehoods, what have you seen with regards to fake news that spreads within different geographical contexts? And what can we learn from this about transnational political alliances? Yes, this is a very interesting phenomenon that I observed back in 2016. So I noticed a lot of fake news, misinformation, disinformation about American election has been translated into Chinese. And it was very, very popular in Chinese social media, such as Weibo and WeChat. And so this is very interesting. I think there are at least two factors behind this transnational flow of fake news from the Western world to uh, China. One is that for a lot of times, this kind of misinformation and disinformation really portrayed a like messy, a chaotic picture of U.S. politics, right? And this is a thing that the Chinese government loves to see, right? This is a proof that American Western uh, liberal democracy is actually not as good as people imagine, right? A lot of like Hillary Clinton uh, is believed to have killed people, right? And to be short, I think one important reason is that 
a lot of the Chinese Trump supporters believing in social Darwinism. So they do not like this, for example, this racial equality, gender equality thing, initiatives that promoted by the Democratic Party. Right, so they adopt this more conservative view of the world. But I think these two phenomena are working together to make this fake news about U.S. election very, very popular. And this year is still very, very lot of fake news about, for example, this、uh, voter fraud in the 2020 election is very, very, very popular in China. Again, I do think the two factors. One, of course, it shows that. This American election is really flawed, right? A lot of problems, massive system there. So the government wants to see that, likes to see that. Another thing is that yes, the Trump supporters, the Chinese Trump supporters, really、uh, likes to translate those、uh, fake news about voter fraud into Chinese. I think this dynamic will be more and more complicated in the near future. To add to that is that when we look also at elections. It's becoming more and more a strategy, right? And I think what Kecheng mentioned was very important to use this new information environment to portray the image of how the other looks like. As Kecheng mentioned, like okay, democracy doesn't work, or the United States is a chaos. Like that's pretty much how Russia also aimed at, according to the studies during the interference in 2016. So we are seeing in the past years information becoming a geopolitical tool to really demonstrate how our system works better than the other system. And I think more and more we are seeing that in different contexts. And I one other context that we saw that was in the response to the coronavirus. The European Stratcom, which is the body responsible for Investigating and unveiling disinformation campaigns in the European Union unveiled that a lot of that was a state-sponsored Chinese campaign to discredit the response of the European Union to the virus. So when Italy was in that chaos in the beginning, there were lots of news saying like, "Oh, China is helping Italy, but the European Union is not doing anything." To really show that, or the way that China dealt with the virus was much better than the way the European dealt with the virus, and why? Because our system is better. So. More and more, we are seeing information being used as a weapon. That's why a lot of those bodies responsible to analyze that are called hybrid threats or hybrid information ecosystem to kind of understand how this can be used as a strategy to not only portray your country as the best in doing something, but also discrediting another or confusing the other side. So it's very interesting to see how this is a growing strategy and how we are not really ready to respond appropriately to that because、uh, in many countries this go unnoticed even because there is not enough scrutiny to that. So I think what we know a lot in the European Union and the US is because Civil society in those countries are very active in trying to unveil that, but in other countries, we are still in the dark, understanding how this can be impacted. There's also these kind of international PR firms that are being employed now more and more. You know, places like India, Syria have these international PR firms that are. Working in there to make sure that they're getting positive coverage in the media as well. So in terms of what these governments are doing on a kind of PR level, you know, behind the scenes that we don't even know about, really, <laughs> you know. Yeah, those campaigns can be politically motivated or they can be financially motivated as well. Sometimes they don't have a political agenda; they just want to gain clicks. So it's a clickbaiting strategy. Or sometimes they want to 
use this platform's Facebook already and viewed a lot of pages that were actually trying to discredit the competition for a given company. So they use those portals or this information to actually discredit concurrence in the market. But here and there, they had political misinformation as well. But it was not aimed at a political reason, but rather for financial motivation. So I think it's interesting to make this distinction because it really helps identifying what is the share of the problem that is political, geopolitical, what is the share of the problem that is financial? And then to tackle both, you have different strategies. One is to break the cycle of financial gains that you receive from those uh, portals. The other one is to responsabilize or see who's behind the politically motivated actions. Yes, that also happens in China. So for a lot of social media accounts that promotes this fake news about US elections, it is not sponsored by the government. They do this simply because they can attract clicks, and then they can check advertisement. So I think for them, this is a politically safe and a commercially very, very profitable way to produce content. So then moving on to the kind of actors and the role that they've been playing in challenging and calling out these falsehoods. What measures do you think have been working so far? What have been effective and why? Like kind of civil society actors and the roles that they might be playing in calling out some of these falsehoods and what measures they're taking that are so far proving to be effective. I think a good starting point for me to think about this issue when you think about disinformation, manipulation, it's to think about this not as a problem of social media, but rather a societal problem. So it's not, I mean, of course, social media companies are at the center of this problem, but like it's very narrow-sided if we just look at them for the answers, because I think the answers should be a something more holistic, because what this problem showed is that media has problems, civil society needs to be ready to respond faster. There is a big of information asymmetry between the beholders of this new technologies in comparison with governments, in comparison with civil society. So I think we need to level everyone up and understand that everyone has a share to play in this field. So one, let's take the US, for example, because it was an interesting case where due to 2016 elections was a big surprise. And then 2020, everyone was aware of that and they did everything they could to prevent. So what did we see in the US? We didn't see legislation on the topic. So we didn't see any any relevant or meaningful legislation to maybe make tech companies more accountable or provide more tools to civil society to do a better job. But what we saw was a huge movement from the civil society or research community. They created this 2020 election integrity partnership in the US, which basically put together different actors in this field of disinformation. So Atlantic Council, they have this DRF lab, they have Grafica, which is a big company looking into disinformation campaigns. And they basically got together to analyze in real time disinformation campaigns on the elections, report to tech companies and actually take action more strongly. Tech companies also took unprecedented measures. So we in the US, we see a very proactive role of tech companies and civil society. In Europe, we also see a strong civil society, but most of all, Europe went to regulatory approach. So there are two pieces of legislation right now being discussed at the EU. No, one is legislation, which is the Digital Services Act, and the other one is a package of tools called the European Democracy Action Plan. And both of them together aim at looking at this problem holistically. So it's not only regulating about what tech companies should do, but rather giving tools to civil society so that they can do this job of like monitoring, raising attention, journalists. And they also acknowledge that media pluralism is something that has been fading over the past years. And we need to go back to a more 
plural media environment, also acknowledging the financial incentives behind those news portals that actually gain a lot of money from the strategy of disinformation. So really looking at it holistically. Maybe I can add something from another context, the Chinese context. So in the authoritarian regime, it's really, we cannot really expect the government the legislation <laughs> to work in this area because, of course, the government wants to crack down on all the fake news that is not favorable to the government, that challenges the government, right? So, but for more comprehensive and more balanced action, uh, we cannot really depend on the government. Uh, so the most I see is actually from the, for example, groups of people will organize into volunteer groups to do fact-checking, Right. They include journalists, former journalists, and also just uh, ordinary uh, citizens who are interested in this. So I also personally wrote some fact-checking articles about the U.S. election. And so this is the thing that we can do to publish that on social media and uh, get some views but we cannot overestimate its effect because obviously people are more interested in reading those fake news than reading our fact-checking pieces. This applies to the fact-checking all over the world because it is much more boring than those sensational fake news. So I think that's the thing I see in China. Mm -hmm. I can also say that more and more uh, fact-checking platforms are starting in Poland. But still, a few months ago, I was talking with students from high school, and they said that they do not distinguish the source of media while scrolling Facebook. They don't know if the information they are reading comes from the true source or actually is a fake news. And then they don't put attention into from where they're searching the news. The Facebook is the source. And I think that we should invest into media literacy and to teach children critical thinking as well as older people, because they usually think that what they found in the internet is true because someone wrote it. Why should it be fake news? So, well, since the responsibility of the what we are reading is on based on users, because even the Facebook is working with fact-checking platforms or think tanks, but still the user has to click that something might be wrong or might be false. So we have to distinguish what is true or not. So the majority of the responsibility is still on us. So we have to be educated well to fight with fake news. So, you know, people are more and more aware of not only the possibilities, but also the threats that social media can pose. How far do you think that we might be witnessing a turning point when it comes to users and, you know, their relationship with social media and their use of it? Yeah, I feel that like also for all of us here in this uh, conversation, we are a generation who joined social media, right? So we were born in an era that social media was not a big thing. Maybe we got like those very early stages of, of social media in our respective countries, but we were not born in this connected world. And I think for us was an interesting learning curve where we saw this new world opening up to us and try to understand how things are different there, trying to discern things, which is a point that Eva mentioned. So like there are three generations here that I have as a little brother. He has uh, 12 years old right now. And he's a micro-influencer on TikTok. He has 16,000 followers. He just posts uh, dog videos, very bad ones, but he has like <laughs> thousands of followers. But it's interesting for me to see how 
my parents' generation deal with social media in a different way that I deal with, and my brother is a completely different relationship to it. And I think more and more this new generation will be connected from the day they are born, and for them it's going to be more natural to use these tools. TikTok, for example, it's a generation who really is comfortable with videos. And in TikTok, as much as I know that there are possibilities of false information being shared, it's not a... Uh, a platform that you consume information in the same way you consume information on YouTube, Twitter, or Facebook. So it's a different dynamic. It's a different logic of social media. So I think this relationship will keep changing. So different generations deal with social media in a different way. I don't, I don't see any of those big tech companies vanishing anytime soon. I think they also keep innovating. They know that innovation is at the core of their success and they will keep doing those things. So I think. What I would say is that in the future, social media will become more and more regional. So people will see more and more the potential for social media to influence even social developments. I do see a trend that users, people, ordinary people are going to question the power of the big tech more and more and to uh, have more concerns about their data privacy and also the business model of these platforms. Uh, for example, recent days, there is a surge in people switching from WhatsApp to Signal. The only possibility that it will change is that people realize that we have to change this. So I do think this is a good thing. But the problem is that how, how we can sustain this momentum to question, to challenge the power. And also another example, uh, Rafael just mentioned the Chinese platforms. Yes, there are many powerful Chinese platforms nowadays, but people are also questioning that platform. Another example is that last year, I think last year, one of the most influential investigative journalism in China is a long piece questioning a food delivery platform called Meituan. So basically, that platform exploited these delivery workers and to push them to a limit, to extreme, so that they can only earn enough money if they break the traffic laws, if they ignore the red lights, if they use everything they can do to manage to deliver the food on time. So basically, that article was very, very influential. People began to question the algorithms that pushed the delivery workers to their limit and caused a lot of injuries and uh, traffic accidents like that. So I think there's a trend there. But like Rafael, I do not think there's a turning point, but I do see this trend is coming, and I do hope that turning point is coming because we do have to imagine and to build up new kinds of platform that is better to individuals and better to the society. I think that we can talk about how bad social media are and how people are switching from one platform to another and coming back to the first one. But during the pandemic, I think that everything changed. We can talk about how they are ruining our privacy and how many things they they know about us. But during the pandemic, that's the only tool actually brings us together uh, where we can unite and build democracy. And there was one case in October 22 in Poland where people started protesting against uh, the restriction when it comes to abortion. The ruling government wanted to totally ban the abortion in Poland. And social media were the only tool where we could discuss this. And which brings people outside of their house during the pandemic, which was actually something huge. And protested on protest on the streets. So I think that there is still huge power in social media. 
that is um, something which cannot be changed, cannot be switched by any other means or tool. So because of the global pandemic, they had an agreement with the World Health Organization that basically mentioned what was the scientific evidence related to the virus. And based on this agreement, they took down posts from Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, from Rudy Giuliani, from Maduro. So that was the first time that those companies started taking down content from those high-level politicians based on the fact that if people would follow the guidance of these politicians that was false and not scientifically correct, that could cause harm. So they were like offering different treatments that were not scientifically proven or making people agglomerate or really like going against sanitary um, measures. So what they understood is that like, okay, this may cause imminent harm and people may get sick. So let's take down the content. Some politicians came to the media to, to talk about their opinions, but Again, going back to, to what I mentioned before, right now we are in this vacuum of legislation. So we don't have specific procedures of when a government or when uh, platforms should do this or that. So at the moment, we don't have legislation to, to guide this type of decisions. And in the short term, in the, in the potential of imminent harm, I think what the companies did was, okay, let's take this, this action and shut his voice down because we see the potential of threat being higher. The problem with that is that you set a precedent, and I don't know if tech companies would be willing to do the same in other countries in the world. So are they willing to shut down a lot of voices that are causing imminent harm, that have caused imminent harm in the past year, two years, but nobody was shut down? So what are the standards or what are the rules or precedents or steps that one needs to achieve in order to be banned? Or is it going to be an arbitrary decision of the leadership of the company? So I think those questions are more important to ask rather than say if it's right or wrong. I think there is no right or wrong in this situation. There is rather an unprecedented action that needs to be thought as being unprecedented. And therefore, we need to establish procedures in order to see what can be done. And we might be divided into platforms based on our beliefs is happening right now because currently in Poland we have more generally we are living in the bubbles even on Facebook or other platforms if you are reading news or articles posts from sites you liked so we are kind of in the bubbles and currently in the Poland there is a platform for true Polish people it's called Mesłowianie and they can also decide who is in the platform and who's not. And they are just banning people just because without any reasonable answer why they were banned. So technological changes seem to be far ahead of our ability to respond to them. Is there any way to predict future development directions or to be able to react on an ongoing basis instead of constantly playing catch up? Yeah, I think this, this is really difficult. And uh, maybe one thing we sh can do is actually look into the history to see how technology develops. And I think the way technology develops is not like something that developed on its own, right? Technology develops as how people shape them to develop. Right. So we have social media we see today. It's not because they were born this way, right? They were gradually shaped by people in this way. So one thing maybe I want to mention is that we do have this kind of agency or this kind of power to decide what kind of new platforms, new technologies we want and how do we want to use that. So I do think that technology does not operate on its own. It interacts with how we 
deal with them, interact with the social condition. For example, the problem of social media nowadays is actually coming from the interaction between technology and the business model. Right. We talk about how this commercial for-profit motivation actually driven the production and circulation of fake news. Right. So I do think the problem is does not only lies in the development of, of technology, but also in the overall uh, social condition. For example, it also relates to the rise of this populist uh, political movement in many countries. So I do think this this, this uh, maybe I do not answer this question, but I just want to provide a uh, more comprehensive framework for us to understand the development of technology. Yeah, I agree with Kicheng. It's more complex than only technology development. It's really how we, we interact with it and our needs and, and what companies are trying to explore because in the end of the day, the business model that Kicheng mentioned is one that acknowledges psychological needs from people and play on them to make people stay more on social media. And I think what Eva mentioned before, it's good and bad, you know, like there is no clear cut. This is bad. We live in an information environment, which is infinite nowadays. And social media companies help us filter the content that we want or filter the products that we need to buy and things that are interesting for us. We can have a healthier relationship with these new technologies, but this is up for us as individuals, but also regulation and also the whole society to discuss. We find ourselves solving the problem and playing this catch-up game. And artificial intelligence is a great example of that. Like I recently wrote with, in partnership with a colleague of mine, a paper about uh, deep fakes and the future of disinformation and how artificial intelligence can be used to produce content aimed at deceiving people. So imagine that nowadays we are very skilled with fact-checking. We're very skilled in, in order to find the truthworthy information. But you see a video of a politician saying something that they didn't say because technology is so good at faking people's face that you will believe in something that your eyes are seeing. So like the next level of this information is not believing in your own eyes. It's not only about, you know, looking for the truth behind, but really not believing in what you're seeing. And this is an innovation that can be very harmful. Of course, it can be very good for other aspects. Do we really need this technology? If so, for which aspects? Or if so, what do we need to be developed? Because I think people are very profit-oriented, but they look only at how to develop this technology, but they don't develop the like counter-technology, let's say. There are ways of thinking about new technologies and to prevent the harm. But I believe that this should be a broader discussion and a more societal discussion rather than keeping only into experts' hands. And to our final question then, um, in your opinion, what could be a holistic approach to dealing with what Raphael has so aptly described as an infected ecosystem? Yeah, there is a huge difference between what we need and what we want. Currently, we need equal access to information and there is a huge role of media in general that they missed when social media appears, that they were actually repeating what politicians said on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, etc., without analyzing what they said. And I think that was the very good point to change the how media are covering politicians and how they are covering subjects and who they actually serve, the politician or public. I think that the huge role of media is to bring the information that is building democracy, but currently I think they lost the connection with, with the public, and that's the the problem, uh, which is... That's the, mm, the gap which is 
fulfilled with fake news that some people don't have access to good relevant information and that's why they believe in something which is clear and which is easy to find. Maybe I can mention one thing that uh, Raphael just mentioned, which is innovation. Maybe an approach to deal with this problem can also be innovation, right? Uh, he also mentioned this kind of our social media becoming more and more regional focused, regional based. And also the approach to deal with the problem are also becoming more regionalized, right? Europe has its own set of uh, policies and approaches, and China and U.S. have their own approaches. So maybe let's just see after a few years, let's see which region does best in dealing with these uh, problems. Maybe we let these different approaches to compete with each other to see uh, which one wins in the end. So maybe this is too optimistic approach, estimation, but that might be a thing that we can see in future. Yeah, and I think I would add, bringing some points that we discussed today, I mentioned that the holistic approach that I believe should be the solution before, that like governments have a role to play, tech companies have a role to play, civil society as well, researchers, academics, journalists, media. So everyone has a responsibility on that. But Kachen mentioned like some countries, you don't have the role of government. So China won't be legislating on that, won't be taking any action on that. In fact, they do the opposite in trying to kind of control speech in some senses. Some other countries control speech. Some of the countries close their borders, digital borders, so to say, like Russia is trying to do their own internet. So I think those dynamics make it very hard for us to think about one solution. And I think we have elements and we have tools that can be used in environments that one is probably not available, such as legislation, let's say. But for me, what is interesting to see as it is at the moment, we have a lot of countries trying to deal with the problem in an uncoordinated manner, but we have global companies that have activities in more than 150 markets around the world. So it's a very different dynamic because if one country legislates, it won't affect the overall way in which this company operates in other markets. So what I'm feeling very hopeful is that since the European Union is such a big player in the international, like I, I also don't see anytime soon international standards being developed in this area because many countries see this in different lenses and in different problems. And if the European legislation is effective in countering this this problem or at least showing a way out, I'm very hopeful that many countries will follow in legislation on that specific area because one other risk that I'm seeing over the past years is that countries are legislating over the issue in a wrong way. So many countries are trying to criminalize this information and trying to put fines or, or, or put people in jail who share this information, but then like who judges what's true or false? Sometimes some countries might put people in jail that are saying things against the government. So for them, this is disinformation and this is creating a social instability and therefore people need to go to jail. So every country will have their different approaches to that. And I think it's wrong for you to approach the issue as let's put people in jail, but rather understand how to increase the quality of information in those environments. So I really hope to see best practices being replicated over the next years and maybe even see big tech companies replicating voluntarily those best practices in other countries. So not waiting the government to legislate or really taking the responsibility into their own hands and, and, and just doing their replicating that without expecting the government to define every single detail. So I, that's, that's what I'm hopeful for. 
That was the first episode of Ipri Talks, where you heard our guests Eva Dunel, Raphael Schmuziger, and Kecheng Fang. This podcast is produced by Yulia Szynska, Matthias Jokman, and myself, Gori Sharma, with the generous support of the Ipri program. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope to see you next time.